This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Good morning. Good, that's a good response. Well, some of you may know that I am an Aggie. There we go. I think, Aaron, you were first service. You cheated. My son and my daughter were here. They should have whooped too. Um, So after graduating from Texas A&M University, I came to realize, sadly, that our basketball program offered little historical reason for excitement. So I decided to attend Duke University to get my master's degree. And I must say this turned out to be one of the most brilliant decisions of my life. Because since I have graduated, these two schools have won five national championships. That's right, five. Now, while all of these have been won by Duke, (laughs) we're still holding out hope for the Aggie football team next year, right? Well, on April 5th, 2010, it was a Monday night. Duke was playing for one of the national championships. We were playing the Bulldogs of Butler, and that game was back and forth all night. Neither team ever led by more than six points. Now, with about two minutes left in the game, a close game, my heart was beating a hundred miles an hour. So what did I do? I took the dog out for a walk. So why did I do that? Why did I walk away from the most important game of the year at the most important time of the game? As I've reflected on this behavior By the way, that's not unusual for me in these kinds of circumstances. I've decided it's because I cared too much. And the fear of the pain of dashed sports hopes was just too strong. I'm not proud of that, but I care too much. And the fear of the pain of dashed sports hopes was just too strong. Now, when I use the word hope to describe my emotions that Monday night in 2010, I'm using the word like most of the world uses the word hope, right? A desire for some future thing which we are uncertain of attaining. That's the way we most think about the word hope, don't we? The way we most use it, a desire for some future thing which we are uncertain of attaining. I hope my flight's not delayed. I hope this test is not too hard. I hope we make our number this quarter. I hope Matt preaches next week. Hope. It's a desire for some future thing which we are uncertain of attaining. That is certainly the way the world uses the word hope. And while the examples I just mentioned above are kind of trivial or silly, these are things that we hope for, the same can be said for much of what the world places hope in. The big things, the life things the existential things. So on this fine Advent morning, I would like for us to think about these things and ask ourselves the question, where are you placing your hope? And as we explore that question this morning, we're going to do so in three sections, a hope that shatters, a hope that saves, and a hope that sustains. Now I thought about Naming this first point instead of a hope that shatters, I thought of calling it a hope that dies, but it would have messed up my alliteration. And I spent a lot of time on the alliteration part of this. I was going to anchor that point in that famous quote from Andy Dufresne in the film The Shawshank Redemption. You may remember this quote, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, 
and no good thing ever dies. But as much as we may have been rooting for Andy, and I think we all know, though, that quote is absolutely not true. Yes, hope is a good thing. We'll agree with that. But hopes die all the time. The world is full of shattered dreams and dashed hopes. Andy placed his hope in his escape plan and his freedom. Where are you placing your hope this morning? Are you placing your hope in your health? Are you placing your hope in your family? In your professional success? Are you placing your hope in your position in life? Are you placing your hope in your fortune? Two things strike me about these hopes I just listed, the things we can place our hope in. First of all, in and of themselves, each of them is a good thing. In fact, we can point to these things as blessings in our life from a loving and compassionate and caring God. I praise God for my family. I praise God for my health. These are good, good things. The second thing I notice about these things is they are all so fragile. They can be lost so easily. They can be taken from us. They can be shattered. Job was a man who saw some things shatter, wasn't he? Seemingly all at once, Job lost his children, his fortune, his health. He probably wished he lost his friends too, but you may remember that they dropped by to mourn with him and to support him by calling him a liar and accusing him of sin. Great, great buddies, these. And though their words to Job largely missed the mark, there was some element of truth in what they said. Listen to what one of Job's friends says about those who put their trust in worldly things. This is from Job 8. What they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold. Haven't we all seen this, either in our own lives or the lives of those around us? Fragile hopes shattered, dreams snapped. Haven't we seen things that we trust in give way? This may have been a more difficult point to make a couple of years ago. But I think COVID has certainly shaken our world. And I do not imagine that there is a single person on God's green earth who has not felt the impact of COVID. Maybe you were stricken by the disease itself. Maybe the steps that were taken to address the disease. Maybe you were sick. Maybe someone you love was sick or passed away. Maybe your job has changed. Maybe your job is gone. Maybe your fear has spiked. Maybe your anger. Maybe you've lost friends who view these last couple of years through a different lens than you do. But I think all of us can point to some area of our lives or our hearts or our spirit They were affected by COVID. I bet all of us have something we can point to and say, yep, that was a spider web after all. It gave away. It did not hold. And if these things lost or damaged, if they were the source of your hope, where do you turn now? Now, thankfully, the Christian meaning of the word hope is almost the complete opposite of the way the world uses the word. Instead of a desire for some future thing which we are uncertain of attaining, the Bible speaks of hope as a confident expectation. As John Piper has said, biblical hope not only desires something good in the future, it expects it to happen. And it not only expects it to happen, it is confident it will happen. There is moral certainty that the good we expect and desire will be done. Our text this morning speaks about that kind of hope. 
And it speaks to the object of that hope, Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate during this Advent season. So will you please rise with me as I read from Peter's first letter, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while... You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As Matt so rightly reminds us so often, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. Well, tomorrow, my grandson, Elliot Cameron Bridges, will be 11 weeks old. I thought he was going to be here, but he's somewhere. He's 11 weeks old. He is young. But I already see greatness there. Now, little Elliot was born into a number of things. He was born into the family of my son Cameron and his beautiful wife Anna. He was born into the great state of Texas. He was born into the power and protection and privilege of American citizenship. And although Sally and I probably need to update our wills a bit, he was likely born into some sort of inheritance. Perhaps, unlike my children, he will value my old comic books. But in our reading this morning, Peter is talking about the things that we as believers in Christ are born into because of our new birth. All of the amazing things that we see in these verses, all of them, and especially our living hope, they all spring from this new birth. So let's back up a bit and ask, what is the new birth? What does that mean? Well, Jesus, as you remember, introduced this idea to Nicodemus in John 3 when he told him that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And then just a few verses later, and perhaps the most famous or well-known verses of Scripture, we learn about what that means. We learn about this new life. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That is the new birth. Birth into eternal life. That's the good news. And without Christ, we stand condemned because of our sin. But by trusting in Christ, His birth, His sacrificial death to pay for our sin, His resurrection from the dead, we are born again. We have new life. And let's take even one more step backward in that text. Peter starts this section of his letter reminding us that we have this new life. We have this new birth because of God's great mercy. In his great mercy, 
He has given us new birth. And we see two words in just this little phrase that separate Christianity from every other religion in the world. Mercy and given. There are no strings attached to this gift. No performance on your part. You did nothing to earn this gift. In fact, you don't deserve the gift at all. After all, isn't that what mercy means? Showing compassion toward an offender or an adversary? And this is not mercy like you and I would give. This is mercy of God. Listen to how Spurgeon describes the depth of God's mercy in a sermon from 1870. He's imagining a scene in a German village at a German rail station during the Franco-Prussian War that was raging at the time of his sermon. I'm going to read this, but I want you to hear it in an English accent. I'm not going to try to read it like what, but I want you to hear it that way. From Spurgeon's sermon. You have read this last week, I dare say, and felt sickened as you read the fearful stories of the wounded and their sufferings on the battlefield. You have read also descriptions of how the wounded, when they are brought into the diverse German towns, are met by their compatriots who rejoice in their victories, but at the same time lament for the valiant men who were maimed for life. You stand on the platform of the railway station, a stranger, and you see a fine young man with an arm shot away, looking sickly and pale from pain and hardship, and you pity him. I know you pity him in your heart, but an elderly man rushes before you. It is the father, and as he looks, as he looks upon his son, whom he sent to war so manly, so strong, so full of health and vigor, now reduced to the mere ghost of what he was, he pities as a stranger cannot. His inmost bowels are moved with compassion for his son. The mercy of the Lord to us is not the mercy of a stranger to a stranger, but the mercy of a father toward his own dear children. Such mercy has the Lord had on me, and I weep for joy as I tell of it. <coughs> Excuse me. Because of the Father's great love for you, because of his great mercy, the mercy of a father towards his own dear children, he offers you a new birth, a new life. And now as we sort of finally move forward in the text again, Peter tells us that along with his new birth comes two other amazing things, a living hope and an inheritance. Well, what is a living hope? What makes this hope different from the hope that I have during a Duke basketball game? Or the hope that I have that my low gas alarm in my car is crazily conservative? The difference is that the outcome of our living hope has already been settled. It's been established. It's done. Peter tells us that this living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an event that has already happened. Because Jesus Christ is no longer dead, because the grave is empty, because he has defeated death, then we know with great moral certainty that we too will be like him. Because he lives, we will live. I know this is an Advent service and not an Easter service, but the reason we celebrate the living hope of the Advent is because of the empty grave on Easter. And to demonstrate even further that this hope is not like the world's hope, Peter goes on to say that we have also gained an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, an imperishable inheritance. It's not like my ratty comic books or something kept in a safe deposit box where thieves can break in 
where moth and vermin can destroy, not land that can be taken or lost or stocks that can lose their value, not money that can be eroded by inflation. It is an imperishable, incorruptible inheritance kept in heaven for us. It is not our responsibility to maintain this inheritance. We don't have to fight the demons from hell who would seek to take it from us. It is kept for us in heaven by God Almighty. Peter goes on to say that we are shielded by God's power. Isn't that amazing? Listen to how Jesus describes the power that watches and preserves and shields us, his sheep. As he describes it in John 10, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given, to, given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Yes, God has promised to keep our inheritance, and nothing is more powerful or great than God. So, by being born again, we are born into a living hope and an incorruptible inheritance. Isn't that fabulous? But how does that help me today? What about the right here and the right now? Has that thought crossed your mind this morning? I bet you dollars to donuts that it crossed the minds of those people reading the letter that they received from Peter. Why? Well, because Peter likely wrote this letter during the time of Emperor Nero, a time of great persecution in the Christian church. You can see evidence of the struggles they were facing in verse 6, where, he's, where Peter says, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So in this short verse, we see two things put together that would never, ever be put together in the world. Rejoicing and suffering. Trials. And notice the tense of both of these phrases. It's the very same tense. Peter's not saying, hey, it's going to be rough sledding for a little bit, but then you can rejoice. And he's not saying, hey, let's, rush, let's rejoice today because it's getting ready to be pretty rough out there. No, he tells them that we should be rejoicing while we are suffering. How is this even possible? Well, for those whose hope is in the world, it's not. If your hope is something other than in the gospel of Jesus Christ, these two things, suffering and rejoicing, they cannot coexist. As Tim Keller has said, how can you rejoice when the things that give you life are taken from you? How can you rejoice while you are suffering? If your hope is in anything other than God, it's impossible for those spider webs that you trust in, they will fail. But your new life, your living hope, it's a hope that sustains an inheritance incorruptible so that the tragedies of this life, the sorrows, the disappointments, the loss, the injustice, the unfairness, they cannot damage it. Your hope remains alive and constant because God is keeping it for you. Your hope sustains you. And I say this absolutely in no way to minimize the pain and suffering that we experience in this life. Some of you, even this morning, sitting in this room, are wrestling with it. Suffering is real, and it reminds us that it's part of our human condition until Jesus comes back and sets all things right. It's one of the things I love most about the Bible. The men and women that are in the pages of Scripture, the heroes of our faith, they're so very, very real, and they are no strangers to suffering. We talked about Job earlier. What did he do as a result of his suffering? Well, he tore his clothes, he shaved his head, he sat in a pile of ashes, and he scratched himself with broken pottery for days. 
And how about King David, the man after God's own heart? In 2 Samuel 12, how did he react when his son was struck with a fatal illness? He pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and he spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground for seven days. Or how about Christ himself in the garden telling the disciples in Mark 14 that my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And on the cross crying out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? Perhaps some of you are hearing that this morning and thinking, yeah, that that sounds about right. I've had a few nights like that. Or yeah, I'm, I'm walking through suffering like that right now. As followers of Christ, we are not immune from these problems, from this suffering. That is not the hope. But if that's you this morning, please know that God is with you. Please know that he knows what you are going through. He is not off duty. Sally and I went to a funeral on Friday afternoon of a 34-year-old young man. And his mother said something during the service that I won't forever forget. She said, I praise God that I worship a God who knows what it's like to lose a son. Our God is not off duty. He has not let things get a bit out of control in his absence. God loves you with an everlasting, incorruptible, and redemptive love. And as a follower of Christ, he's given you a living hope, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, a hope that sustains. But if you don't have this hope, I don't know what sustains you. I don't know how you can survive when circumstances turn against you, when the spider webs break. What do you cling to? Let's go back to that Duke-Butler game in 2010. I know all of you are just anxiously waiting to know what happened in that game. As a reminder, I had great hope that Duke would win that evening, but it was a worldly hope, I'll be honest. It was a desire for some future thing, which I was quite uncertain of attaining. In fact, the desire was so strong and the uncertainty so profound that I chickened out and had to leave the house. Now, Sally and I have been married for 37 years. Isn't that amazing? Sally, accolades for that. For those of you perhaps not as married as long, I'd like to offer you a couple of simple rules that have been foundational to our marriage. I hope you can take this from the lesson today. First of all, you cannot use animals in the made you look game. If I tell Sally, look, there's a moose over there, there's got to be a moose over there. Jokes are fun, but some things are too important to joke about. In case you're wondering, that's Sally's rule. The second rule is this, you cannot lie about a sports score. That one is mine. Jokes are fun, but some things are too important to joke about. So after walking outside for about 20 minutes away from the game, out of the house with the outcome hanging in the balance, I opened the door, stuck my head in, and I yelled out, did we win? She said, yes. I said, good. And I sat down and watched the ending of that game. Now, I'm sure you may not remember the end of the game, but it was crazy. Duke was leading by two with just a few ticks on the clock remaining. When just before the buzzer sounded, Gordon Hayward from Butler heaved up a half-court shot for the win, a three-point shot. It hit the backboard, it hit the rim, and it bounced away. Duke had won, and they win every single time I watch that replay. (laughs) And even though I've watched that replay a lot, even last week as I prepared for this sermon, it absolutely, my heart's racing right now. It makes my heart race. As if somehow that last desperate shot, this time, might go in. But it never, ever does. My worldly hope has become like Christian hope. I know with complete certainty now how that game ends. 
Remember that Piper quote? Biblical hope not only desires something good in the future, it expects it to happen. And it not only expects it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. There is moral certainty that the good we expect and desire will be done. Now, I want to close this look at hope by introducing you to another person who understood moral certainty and Christian hope. And he understood it in a more infinitely important way than a silly Duke basketball game. Polycarp was a man born in the first century, back in the days when you just got the one name. And although we don't know for sure when he was born, it was probably around 70 A.D., less than 40 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Polycarp was running around with people that had been alive when Christ was first alive on earth. In fact, one of Polycarp's pals was John. Yeah, that John, the Apostle John. Can you imagine hanging out with John? Maybe fishing with John, sitting around a campfire, having dinner together. John ended his gospel saying, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. I bet Polycarp sat around a fire with John, probably heard some of those unwritten stories about Jesus. Wow. But apparently Polycarp knew some of the other apostles too, and they appointed him to be Bishop of Smyrna, which is a Greek town, an important center of new believers in Greece. And many believe that he was serving in that role as Bishop of Smyrna when he received a letter from John, along with six other church bishops, a letter we now call Revelation. That's exactly right. Polycarp, they think, might have been one of the six church leaders that received that, seven church leaders that received that. Now, Polycarp was martyred in 156 A.D. He was in his late 80s. And the church was going through its third or fourth wave of persecution from the Roman government. The penalties for professing Christ at that time were terrible. But it would take just a simple word or a simple gesture to avoid those penalties entirely. The martyrdom of Polycarp was recorded by his church and distributed as a letter to other churches in the area. And as I read this account, which is perhaps the only reading of the martyrdom of Polycarp during this Advent season across all Christendom. See what Christian hope looks like from the words words describing Polycarp. Now the sheriff tried to persuade him, Polycarp that is, sitting by his side and saying, Now what harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and in offering incense and so on, and thus saving thyself? Swear, and I will release thee, curse the Christ. And Polycarp said, Eighty in six years I have served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Then the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. If thou repent not, I will throw thee to them. But he said, send for them. Then the proconsul again, if thou dost despise the wild beasts, I can make thee to be consumed by fire, if thou repent not. And Polycarp answered, thou threatenest the fire that burns for an hour, And a little while is quenched, for thou knowest not of the fire of judgment to come, and the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why delayest thou? Bring what thou wilt. Polycarp could tell us a thing or two about hope. There were no spider webs here. A man does not walk into the arena like Polycarp does. People begging him just to save his life by a simple word of denial and rejection. He does not do that based on a flimsy hope that's defined as a desire for some future thing which we are uncertain of attaining. Polycarp boldly 
faced death as a martyr, as did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Christians and brothers and sisters that will someday meet. He did that with a hope defined as the full assurance that God is going to do good for us in the future. That is the hope that we celebrate this morning, the full assurance that God is going to do good to us. And this hope became flesh and dwelt among us with the birth of Jesus Christ. So what are you hoping for this morning, this fourth Sunday of Advent? Like Polycarp, are you filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, knowing with complete certainty that you will receive the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul, no matter the circumstances that surround you? For that's really what we're about in this Advent season. We celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ because he has brought the kind of hope that is found nowhere else, a kind of hope that overcomes fear, overcomes certain circumstances, and is based on a certainty and the promise of an all-powerful and all-knowing God. If you have not experienced this kind of hope, if your hopes are still held together with spider webs, I'm so very glad you're here with us this morning. Please don't leave here without looking for that hope. It's not far from you. Grab someone around you and ask how you can experience this Advent hope. Ask one of the elders. Ask me. Jesus Christ came to save the lost to offer hope to a dying world. Please make this Advent season the season when you come to know and worship him as your Savior. Now, when we finally bump into old Polycarp in heaven, maybe we get to spend an afternoon with him, hearing him tell about his amazing life and his hopeful death, maybe we can ask him what it was like to walk into that arena. What was he thinking? Well, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he told us that as he walked to his death, And the fire that awaited him, it would not surprise me at all if he was not simply praying our scripture this morning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, You love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end results of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you and thank you for the hope that is within us. Father, we thank you for the living hope that we have regardless of circumstance, Regardless of our sin, Father, we thank you that we share the hope of Polycarp, the hope of new life, eternal, incorruptible, imperishable, kept by you. Lord, we pray this morning for those that are hopeless, those that are struggling, those that don't know this hope, whose hopes are held together by spider webs. Father, I pray that you would draw them to yourselves. I pray that you would use us, followers of Christ, to be light and life to them, reflecting hope in all that we say and do. Father, we do worship you and praise you this Advent season for all your glory. Lord, I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our blessed hope. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.